so uh, as I was thinking about this family reunion um, between Joseph and his father and his larger family, one of the most famous, maybe the most famous family reunion in human history and one that's enjoyed by readers all over the world, in a very real sense, I thought, um, and I guess the older you get, the more of your friends go to heaven, you know, uh, and uh, I've often thought about being face-to-face with Jesus, absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord. That's the main thing, right? But the cool thing about heaven is all the folks in the faith you've ever known, and, and everybody who's ever trusted Christ by God's uh, efficacious grace, you know, um, of different colors, countries, cultures, they're all going to be there. So we're going to have an incredible family reunion in the future, even if your families on earth never had family reunions. And it's something that ought to keep us going now because it's not always easy or fun to be a Christian in this fallen world. So as we look at Joseph and Jacob having their reunion in chapter 46, let's pray that it will be teachable to the word of God. And uh, also let's pray for those who protect and serve us, as is our custom. And Doug, would you pray pray for us in that direction, please? Yeah, you know, when everybody else is kind of running away from fires and riots and gunshots, these kind of people are running toward all of that. I never, never forget that. Well, I showed you this picture a minute ago. I want to show you another picture that I really like. That's us, uh, I think the second summer we were here. And boy, some of us really thought church league softball was important. And in a way, it still is. Um, and I also coached both of those baseball teams. So I had some Tuesday nights I had to play a softball game at 6.30 and then coach one and then uh, watch the end of the other one after I got there too late for to coach it. And I was just kind of a spectator there. But that's Jamie on the left and Jonathan on the right. And I love that picture, but Ron always has a better idea, you know. And he said, uh, when he saw that picture, he said, we need to add a caption to that so people can put it in context and appreciate it. So here's the caption that Ron Decided had to go with this picture. Okay, two really good ball players and one preacher. <laughs> Genesis forty-six. Uh, we're going to see Jacob and family travel from Canaan, the promised land. They're leaving the promised land. Can God actually be in this to go to Egypt? They think maybe riding it out for five years. They're going to stay for four hundred in round numbers. The descendants will. And it's verses 1 through 27. Then we're going to see Jacob and Joseph reunited after 22 years. That's the reunion we're talking about. So let's look at first verses 1 through 4. Jacob and family travel from Canaan to Egypt. And Jacob and family stops at Beersheba before leaving the land. Look at verse 1. So Israel, that's... uh, a title for a name for Jacob is used interchangeably in this text, as you'll see. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba. He's 130 years old now, so it's, it's not easy. And offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. Now, he doesn't talk to Israel every day, just a couple of times in his whole lifetime. And this guy's one of the most major people in the line to get the Messiah. But this night, God confirms, yep, I want you to go to Egypt. God spoke to Israel, or Jacob, in visions of the night and said to him, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. 
And God said, I am God, the God of your father. Now, who's Jacob's father? That would be Isaac, as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So that's pretty important. Um, it says, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. I know that I gave your, de- your descendants this Canaan land, this promised land, but I want you right now, it's expedient for you and the family to move to Egypt. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm in this. I'm confirming this. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. It's going to be the incubator in which 70 people become over a million, million and a half probably. And I will go down with you to Egypt, and I'll also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Jacob here, worshiping in Beersheba, which is kind of the last major town in the habitable region of South Israel, especially at that time, was seeking confirmation as he leaves the promised land to live in a nation of pagan polytheists in Egypt, right? And in the back of his mind, he's thinking, hey, my dad, Isaac, was thinking about moving to Egypt, and God said no. So, Julie, how do you put those together? I mean, God tells Isaac, Jacob's father, don't go to Egypt. But here, as Jacob is leaving for Egypt, because that's where Joseph is and that's where the food is, uh, God says, go down go down to Egypt. You know, it's one of those deals where you have a general promise or general principle in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, eventually the nation of Israel were given promise that they would have the land, they'd have a seed who'd become the Messiah, a lion into which the Messiah would come, and they would be a blessing and be blessed by God. That's a general principle, but here we've got a specific part of that process. So we have a big plan, a multi-generational plan over thousands of years, and now we've got a small part in that process of the people of Israel leaving the promised land temporarily, 400 years, in a much larger program. So you have to be flexible as you kind of figure out God's will because sometimes it's almost like a moving target, you might say, because it changes, right? Um, here are the general promises. This is Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. Uh, Abraham, who was Jacob's Grandfather Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and of the twelve sons and Joseph. Go forth from your country. What country was Abram in when he's called? Iraq. He was in Iraq. Okay? Early Chaldees is in Iraq. Uh, go forth from your country to the land which I will show you. What land does God show him? Canaan. Right? I will make you a great nation. I'll make uh, you, uh, I'll make you and I'll make your name great. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. As Paul says, in Abraham's seed, meaning the Messiah, Jesus, ultimately. I will give, and then drop, that's chapter 12, drop down to chapter 17 of Genesis. God tells Abraham, Isaac's grandfather, or Jacob's grandfather, I will give to you and your descendants all the land of Canaan. That's the promised land, Canaan, not Egypt. For everlasting possession, I'll be their God. So that's the general promise. But now notice we've got, so that's the, let's, let's make that the real, uh, wide scope of God's program for Old Testament Israel, starting with Abraham, Moses, and Jacob. But look at a specific part of that process. This is uh, Genesis 15. God said to Abram, your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs. I wonder what that land's called. Starts with an E. <laughs> That's Egypt. 
they'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. That's round numbers. But I also judge that nation whom they, Abraham's descendants, will serve. And afterward, they'll come out with many possessions. Remember when the last plague comes and hits Egypt, just get out of here and take all the stuff you want. Just take our stuff and just go. And they're not down the road very far before Pharaoh changes his mind. As for you, you shall go to your fathers, Abram, and peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they'll return here for the iniquity of the Amorites not yet complete. So, so you quite often have general statements in Scripture and then specific parts of the process. For instance, you know, Romans and First Peter says, basically, always submit to human authority. But you see the apostles, when they are told by human authority not to preach the gospel anymore, go out and preach the gospel anyway. So isn't that a violation? No. You have a general principle. Uh, under normal, uh, legitimate circumstances, submit to human authority, including speed limits. Okay? Until or unless it's a direct sin. It involves you directly disobeying God. Then you have to respectfully say, no, I can't do that. And both of those things are true at the same time. In general, we ought to be law-abiding citizens. But when they tell us we can't preach Romans 1 anymore... We're going to keep going keep right, right on preaching Romans 1, all the way to the jail house or whatever happens there, right? So that, sometimes people see that as a big problem. It's really not a, a big problem at all. And we just need to be better readers, I think, would be good. That'll help us. Now notice it mentions Beersheba. He stops in Beersheba, as I said. That's the southernmost habitable place in Israel, really almost to this day. I mean, they were living in Hebron the last time we were told where the family was, and presumably they were still in and around that city. But now they're going to Bathsheba on the way to Goshen. That's the last place in the promised land they're going to be crossing through. And interestingly enough, Abraham, remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we're talking about Jacob. Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, worshipped at Beersheba. Isaac, who was Jacob's father, built an altar and worshipped God in Beersheba, Genesis 26, 24, and 25. And Kitty, it's very possible, and you can ask Jacob in heaven, uh, when he's sacrificing and seeking God's leading and confirmation as he leaves Israel <clears throat> at Beersheba, he's probably using the altar his dad had built. They're probably still standing. Okay, girls? So uh, it's a beautiful thing when multi-generations get with the program, right? And, you know, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can be pretty slimy at times. I mean, they're almost as bad as some of us. But God uses all kinds of crazy, flawed, raw material to accomplish his purposes. Now, what is this about? Uh, Joseph will close your eyes. What's all that about? That's kind of a uh, an idiom for um, a peaceful death. And the emphasis, I think, there is, even though this dad has been separated from his son for 22 years and just about to reunite for the first time, God's saying, look, go down to Egypt. I'm going to bless you while you're down there. And I'm going to use that as an incubator for 400 plus years to, to turn this 70 people into over a million, million and a half, a true nation. But I, I promise you, you'll never be separated from Joseph again in this life. Uh, he will be with you when you die. He'll comfort you when you die. And so I think that's a significant statement. Verses 1 through 4, Jacob stops at Beersheba before leaving the land, gets confirmation from God. Gets a check off to do that. And now in verses uh, 5 through 27, we have a description of the people making the trip. Um, first, we have a general description, verses 5 through 7. So Jacob arose from Beersheba 
and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Remember, Pharaoh said, hey, we'll, I'll send wagons there to help you make the move. We want you to move to, to Egypt and ride out the famine. They got a seven-year famine, and in the second year, so how many more years of famine they got? So that's, that's their number one priority physically. Let's make sure we have enough food to survive the next five years because it's not going to be easy. So they took their livestock, their property, which they'd acquired in the land of Canaan, came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Okay, So that's kind of an umbrella general statement. Now we get some specifics, specific details. And we get a selective list focusing on the sons and the grandsons of Jacob here in verses 8 through uh, 27. And if you look at it, I'm not going to try to pronounce all these names because uh, I speak Oklahoman and I don't uh, pronounce unusual syllables uh, under pressure. That's just me. You're probably better than I am at that. But you got Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, them and their sons, and in some case their grandsons listed. And then we're told in verse 15, these, that is Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, are the sons of... Uh, Leah of Leah plus the daughter Dinah and then we talk about Gad and Asher in verse 18 those are the sons of Zilpah and then verse 19 through 21 we talk about the sons of Rachel Joseph and Benjamin uh, and the details of that those are the sons of Rachel and then verse 23 the sons of, we've got Dan and his sons Naphtali and his sons these are the sons of Bilhah so what's happening there well there's the list we got a very dysfunctional family is what we got. And it's, it's big. A blended family, is that what they call it today? All right. So we got four wives, and he's breaking this list down based on who the moms are. It got confusing. They had to wear name tags. They had so many people, they had to wear name tags, right? But notice in uh, verse 26, it says, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, we're 66 persons in all, but when you add all those numbers up that we saw with the subtotals, you actually get 70, but that's explained in verse 27. Uh, and the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh, were two, and all the sons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. And it's interesting, there's a couple of different ways scholars deal with those numbers, but uh, Dr. Tom Constable, in one of my favorite sources, soniclight.com, and MacArthur Study Bible in verse 27, and the Ryrie Study Bible in verse 27, basically says this about that. The total of 70, in verse 27, included the 66 members mentioned in 26, verse 26, plus Jacob, Joseph, and Joseph's two sons. So you add that up, and he emphasizes... The total number of people coming, including the wives of Jacob, uh, Jacob's sons and grandsons and husbands or his daughters and granddaughters not listed, would have been greater than 70. So this is kind of a, a round number based on specific uh, reference. Okay? Uh, but notice, don't miss the forest for the trees. I know some people don't like lists like this. They don't like genealogies. There's always a good literary purpose for giving you a list like this. And I think the big purpose of this list is to stress this is a relatively small number. Seventy of the men, and then you've got the wives and some other folks there, the daughters and this and that. And they're all equally important, of course. 
but they're not listed there. But Genesis is followed by what book? Exodus. And you know, you, you end up the, uh, the book of Genesis with the death of Joseph. And then you kind of fast forward after a couple of verses, 400 years, and now you've got 70 have turned into a million or a million and a half people. And the beginning of that next book, Exodus, emphasizes um, that all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number 400 years before, but now you've got a vast number and the Egyptians are freaking out because there's too many of them, right? Deuteronomy, and so that's Exodus, that's the next book. Makes sense they would mention it. But why would Deuteronomy mention that same thing? Deuteronomy 10.22 says, Moses says, Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, referring to that list, not including some of the other folks. And now the Lord has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. The, the big picture is, Egypt's going to be the incubator in which that small group of people become a, a, a large group of people. And that, that's the point. Okay, so don't miss the forest for the trees on those biblical lists, genealogies, and so on. There's a lot of good stuff there. Okay, let's move from Jacob and family, travel from Canaan to Egypt, to verse 28 through 30. Jacob and Joseph are reunited. This is my favorite part, where they get together. Um, And it breaks down like that. Judah leads the way, and then the journey ends in joy. Look at verse 28. Now, Jacob sent Judah before him to Joseph. He's got 12 sons. Reuben's the oldest. There are a couple other ones. But Judah has taken the lead by the force of his personality, his changed character, and other factors. He's the leader of the group uh, under Joseph in Egypt, of course, because he's the prime minister. Now, the dad, Jacob, sent Judah before him on the latter part of the trip to Egypt to, to Joseph to point out the way before him, Jacob and the family to Goshen, which is where they're going to set up. And so they came into the land of Goshen. Uh, Judah has become, as I say, the most important son. And that's uh, counter to his birth order. But we got to put this in context, because this is extremely important when we think about the coming of Christ, right? Now, you guys know this, but a lot of your friends don't. So before you start quoting Bible verses, sometimes you need to say something like, Hey, I know the Bible's a big book, but it only has how many parts? Two parts. The average American doesn't know this, okay? So you're way ahead of them, and you got to help them. And you got to let them know that Old Testament verses about Jesus are written before Jesus came. That's pretty remarkable, right? Uh, one of our premises is all the verses about Jesus being the Lamb were fulfilled literally, not allegorically. So it makes sense to assume the verses about the lion are going to be filled Literally, okay? But anyway, Bible's a big book. It's just one book. How many parts does it have? Two. The first part's called the Old Testament, and those are all the books that are written before the coming of Christ. The major premise is everybody sins, everybody dies. The promise is the Savior's going to come to take care of the sin problem and eventually rule the world. New Testament, second part of the Bible. It's written right after the life and death of Christ. The major premise, the major affirmation of the New Testament is that Jesus of Nazareth is the one that the Old Testament promised would come as the lamb and then the lion. And what's the major promise that we're looking forward to? He's coming back. So look busy. And that's the old joke that some people say. So, But why in the world is Judah so important? Well, watch this. You guys know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob take place like in the... Uh, 
19th century BC, uh, 1875 BC, something like that is where we are now in the Joseph story, a long time ago. But they're part of that generation, it's, uh, that family, I should say, that line that's going to lead to Jesus, right? Uh, how we saved in the New Testament era on this side of the cross, by God's grace, through faith alone and Christ alone, right? June 23rd, can you believe it's June 23rd? We're halfway through the year, right? Almost. Uh, we've been back from Israel a month. Can you believe? I mean, it's been a month. It's like, and you'll turn around, it'll be a year. And you'll turn around, it'll be five years. It's unbelievable. you got to savor those kind of mountaintop experiences. So, yeah, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Very specific object of our salvation. How were folks saved in the Old Testament? Same way. Except they have faith, grace through faith, in the promised Savior and the promises get pretty specific. I mean, face it. You know, one of these days I'm going to get a real graphic designer to make that chart look nicer. But you really get a bullseye on Jesus. And as we're thinking about Judah taking the lead as they're going to Egypt, Dad says, Judah, you're the guy to kind of be walk the point for for us and make sure we go to the right place. Doesn't pick uh, Reuben or the other two older sons. That's because when you look at the Old Testament prophecy about who the Messiah is going to be, it focuses on, i got to be radioactive or something, because this is not the usual one I use, and it works fine all week on practice, but it comes in and out. Maybe I just, my button pushing technique just isn't very good. But notice, uh, the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be a human being, not an angel, an alien would be a male, not a female, would be a Semite, and would be Jewish of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of what tribe is the Messiah going to be? Yeah, going to be of the tribe of Judah. And that's because he takes the lead. And in Genesis 49, Jacob is, through God's leading, is going to be able to prophesy certain characteristics of the tribes that each one of those sons will be the head of. And he is the lion. He is the kingly tribe. Messiah has to be of the line of Judah. And that's why Matthew, the most Jewish New Testament gospel, starts with a genealogy. And Americans don't like genealogy. But the point is, he's proving that Jesus qualifies based on his lineage, that he is Jewish through the line of Judah and the family of David, etc. Okay? So Judah leads the way. Oh, yeah, I didn't want to see that. Judah leads the way. Now the journey ends in joy. And it's amazing the economy of words here, because you'd think you'd want to go into great detail, but Moses summarizes very succinctly what happens, but boy, it's fun to visualize this. So Joseph hitched his horses to his chariot. You won't believe what some skeptics will find wrong with the Bible. It's almost like skeptics finding things wrong about certain leaders. You know, everything he does is wrong. Uh, A few weeks ago, President Trump walked on the Potomac, and the next day, the Washington Post said, President can't swim. You know, I mean, that's just the way these people are. Now watch this. There's actually a skeptic, Richard Dawkins, who, in his commentary, which is him kind of reading very sarcastically and very ignorantly certain passages of Scripture, says, there's no way Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, would hitch his own horses to his chariot. Uh he doesn't know that, and I'm, I was thinking about, it doesn't matter, I never did this for a lot of reasons, like courage is one of them, 
But I understand that army paratroopers, and Lloyd would get this, because I would trust Lloyd to pack my chute, but everybody packs their own chute in the army paratroopers. Everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're a buck private going on your first uh, para-jump. Is that what they call it? Airplane jump? What do they call that? Parachute jump. You know how to parachute? I mean, you're an engineer. It floats, you know. Uh, Do parachutes uh, contradict the law of gravity? No, the law of gravity is right there. It just kind of slows it down by the air resistance of the parachute. Uh, Aren't you glad you came to church? But... um, Everybody packs their own their own chute, and it's possible that Joseph, maybe that was one of the policies in Egypt. you got to hitch your own horses to your wagon so no assassination attempt happens. But I think he's just the kind of guy that doesn't force servants to do a lot of stuff he could do. I think he's just that kind of gracious guy, but to act like, well, no, there's no way. That couldn't be historically possible. There's no way to do that. I mean, Jimmy Carter carried his own garment bag which was a big deal at the time until I found out there was nothing in it. He just wanted to walk the tarmac to look like he was an average guy carrying his garment back, which, you know, um, when you're that insincere, eventually people find out. That's, uh, and I'm not saying he's always insincere. Uh, and I'm sincere when I say that. Um, but Joseph hits the horses to his chariot because he wants to get there as fast as he can. He got the word from Judah. Dad's just down the road. And he went to Goshen to meet his father, uh, and let me pick up the story there from the New American Standard. Joseph prepared his chariot, went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. I told you the first time I uh, was going to leave Jordan to come back after teaching there for three weeks, I was told by an American faculty member, tomorrow you're going to see which one of the faculty members really respect you because some of them that really like you and respect you will kiss you on both cheeks when you go by their office and say goodbye. And I'm, I'm glad he warned me about that. I actually enjoyed it, but now that's a whole different thing. Now. But uh, this is a very bad attempt to try to um, give you a drawing of what this might have looked like. But just notice that all the brothers are happy, everybody's happy, and Joseph has got his... his uh, his uniform on, you know, and there's uh, his 130-year-old father, so happy to be there or anywhere, but just they're both, they can't believe it for joy. It's just too good to be true. And they're both crying tears of joy. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face that you are still alive. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go now. I'm, I'm, I can go. I don't need to do anything else. I've seen you again. And he's going to actually live for another 17 years. Okay, so you never know. <laughs> you never know. I remember my grandmother, who was the greatest woman, then maybe the, Vir- the Virgin Mary herself. And I've told you, she, she was great, but she believed that the moon landings were faked and, and professional wrestling was real, so she had those quirks. But I remember one time, it was right, right after we got married, talking about the way back when, my grandmother was in a hospital in Port Arthur, Texas, and very sick. And they basically said she had a couple of days to live, and she had a complete recovery, God-given, because uh, the doctors didn't do anything. They tried. And she lived another, like, 12 years after that. So you, you never know, right? But uh, so Jacob's ready to go, but it's not up to him. God's going to give him 17 more years. And it's funny, next week, you know, Pharaoh says, how old are you? And he said, uh, 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 long and painful I've been my years on this earth. He just kind of tells you what a 130 year old guy would say. You know, everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. You know, one of those things. But, uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, first response of Joseph when finally 22 years after being, uh, separated from dad upon their reunion, 
tears of joy. Now, you know, the, the song came out, and now we got a movie about the song. I can only imagine. But I can remember the first time that 2 Corinthians 5, 8 was read, and I connected it, you know, to, to me as a pretty young kid, you know, probably 10 or 11 year old kid. The idea, and we had King James, so absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Man, I pictured that, and I picture that a lot. I mean, you know, you, you die physically, your spirit goes right in the blessed presence of Christ, and you're face to face with Him. And I've often thought, what's, the, what am I going to do? And I've always thought, I'm going straight to the feet, you know, and I, I just hug His feet until He hopefully picks me up and says, hey, you know, welcome, uh, young man, or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, we were just talking last night. According to Harold Honer, the guy that did his chronology dissertation at, at Cambridge on the New Testament, he believes that Christ was 33 years old when he was crucified. So he lived to be 33. And uh, when I, I turned 33, I thought, wow, this is neat. I'm as old as the Lord was when he died. And uh, talking to Dustin about old age and stuff. And I said, you know what? I'm 66. I'm double that now. That kind of a, was a shocker. And by the way, Dustin didn't let me tell you this. Dustin is a shoplifter. He doesn't steal stuff at Walmart. He can actually lift shops. I mean, <laughs> small shops. Because he's that strong, okay? Yeah. Uh, he's not laughing, so <laughs> watch, watch what happens after the sermon's over. Uh, I love Genesis 46. It describes this incredible mountaintop experience that brought joy for these guys and brings joys all over joy all over the world and people read about it. Truly incredible. But these kinds of earthly reunions, and this is one of the better ones of all time, will be nothing like the reunion Jan's gonna have with Christian friends and I'm gonna have with my man Rick Buchanan and Bill Dickinson and Joe Dickinson and people like that. Ultimately it's being with the Lord. That's number one. But we're going to, we're all going to be involved in a huge family reunion. Everybody who's died in the faith that we've known will be there. So let's think about this as New Testament believers reading Genesis 46. Jacob and family enter Egypt. Uh, conservative scholars date this at 1875 BC. And although that generation and probably the next generation does quite well and gets the blessing of the government, after a while, a pharaoh arises who knows nothing about Jacob, and the people have become so numerous, you know, they don't have papers, they're kind of afraid of them. I don't see a lot of parallel between that and illegal immigration, because they come, they're coming legally. They just, uh, you know, multiplied largely over the next couple hundred years. But this is 1875 B.C., and in that spiritual incubator for 400 years, the 70 become a million or a million and a half people. Um, and then Moses in 1445 leaves them out of the land. That's the Exodus. But they don't go into the next generation. You guys know the story. Which means, among other things, that neither Jacob, nor his father Isaac, nor his grandfather Abraham saw their nation living as a nation state in the promised land. They don't see that, because that happens a long time after they're gone. Okay, So let's think about that. Hebrews 11 talks about that. And I'll put, uh, this is a paraphrase, just to save time and make a point. Old Testament believers like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the 12 sons, 
all died in faith without having received the promises of a nation state in the land through which the Messiah would come. They did not see that. Okay, They were living in Egypt when they died. It says, but they, they, so they did not receive the promises, but Hebrews says, but they saw them. They saw the promises through faith. They could see through hope, anticipation, it was going to happen. They knew it was going to happen. They saw them, those promises fulfilled, from a distance, from a time distance, and they greeted them. And I'm going to translate that or paraphrase that. They embraced the, the facts that was going to happen in God's time as a key part of their priorities and their whole worldview, the way they thought about themselves and their destiny. And they recognized further they're just foreigners and temporary residents on earth. Now, Blanche, you probably remember this. There was an old song we used to sing, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. What's the rest of the lyric, you remember? I drew a blank on that, and I, I, I was too busy to do a five-minute search on Google. Huh? Yeah, okay, I should have done my five-minute Google search. Don't do that now, but uh, do it later. But yeah, they recognize, you know, the now is important. You hear skeptics warn us about being so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. I've been a pastor for 31 years here and six and a half in Shreveport. I, I don't really see that very often. I don't see that. I don't see that in ministers. I don't see it in anybody. I don't see that in me. That we're so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. I don't see that. Uh, I think we must of us ought to be more heavenly minded. But, uh, yeah, these folks were sustained by knowing, hey, we're part of the preparation to get the Christ here, and that's our lot, and that's our purpose. They were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. What does the Lord Jesus say? We're in the world, but not of the world. Okay? So the now is real and important. We don't deny it or, or isolate from it, but it's, it's not the ultimate, and it's only temporary. You know, our home isn't here. Our home is with the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, ultimately. Uh, now, continuing to paraphrase Hebrews 11. Now, this makes it clear that they, the Old Testament believers like Jacob and Joseph, they were seeking a homeland, not in Canaan or not in Egypt, over and above their lifetimes on earth. Uh, so they set their hearts on a better place, a heavenly one. That's what kept them going. Therefore, God is pleased to be called their God, and he's prepared a place for them, which reminded me of somebody who once said, don't panic. Keep believing in God the Father. Keep believing in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place. Hebrews says, God's prepared a place for them. All of these Old Testament believers were approved by God through faith in the promises of the Messiah and directed through their faith and promises God had given that he would fulfill centered on the Messiah Jesus, even though they did not receive what was promised in their lifetimes on earth. Uh, you read the stories of these Old Testament heroes, and you read that, and that's a New Testament commentary in the way they were living in anticipation, but they didn't see the fulfillment of all of it. We've got a lot of prophecies about the end times and the second coming that haven't happened yet, but they will happen. And part of that, knowing Jesus wins in the end, because it doesn't look like he's winning, if you look at American culture, does it? John Lennon famously said of the Beatles, we're more popular than Jesus. And what he meant, looking at the Anglican church, which was dead and liberal then, now it's off the charts liberal for the most part, he was probably right. I think that pop group was probably more popular than Jesus, the, the, the liberal version, especially that they knew in, in Great Britain at that time. 
So skeptics will say, well, all that unfulfilled prophecy that Dustin believes in and the Harbinger or Ron believes because of Hank Hanegraaff, uh, that's a tongue-in-cheek there because Hank's kind of become amillennial on us. Uh, not that that's the unpardonable sin, but uh, the skeptics say, that's pie in the sky. I mean, Sydney and the powers believe in pie in the sky by and by. It's never going to happen. That's what they told the, the black slaves so they would be content being slaves. Pie in the sky. Jesus is going to come in the future. It's not pie in the sky. It's Christ in the sky since the ascension. <laughs> and he's got a track record. It took thousands of years for the first set of prophecies to happen. We're, and, and I like to say, we're, we're basically as far away from the first coming of Christ as Abraham was from, uh, from the second coming of Christ. We are. Then... Uh, Let's start over. We're approximately as far away from the second coming of Christ. You know what I mean. Just fill in the blank. It's kind of like that joke about prisons. You know, they just tell all the jokes and they put numbers on the jokes and they just say the numbers and stuff. I love that joke, but we're going to not take that. Let me say it again. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Abraham, 2000 B.C., was about as far away from the fulfillment of the first coming of Christ's prophecies as we are from those fulfillments, and we're still waiting. So you might say, well, it's 2019. Jesus ain't coming back. Abraham's in Adam and Eve, you know, in Genesis 3, were promised Messiah was going to come thousands of years later. Okay? So we're just one link in a chain. It's going to happen. It could, the rapture could happen before this message is over, but it might not, and we've got to carry on. But it's going to happen. So it's not pie in the sky. So I'd say cheer up. It's going to get... Worse and then a whole lot better after the second advent millennium, then it's going to get to be perfect. So you're going to really get like, going to really like that. Two more passages and we'll be done. I say that uh, this is something our Lord says about himself and Abraham in John 8. And I say this is in an Old Testament context. Now why would I say that? In, is the Gospel of John a New Testament book? Yeah. So how can I say that John 8 is in an Old Testament context, because it is, because John, the Gospel of John, which I think was written about 69 A.D., boom, okay, keep your finger down there. So, you know, right in here somewhere, John 8 is talking about events that took place before the crucifixion. How do I know that? Because crucifixion doesn't happen until John 19. So John 8 is happening before the crucifixion. John 8 is talking about events that happen in the Old Testament setting, although this is a New Testament book. So keep that in mind when in the midst of a debate with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, Jesus says, your father Abraham, your great-great-great-great-grandfather, the head of the beginning of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day. He saw it with the eyes of faith, which is what Hebrews said about the Old Testament saints talking about the whole program. He saw it in faith. He saw it in faith, Hebrews 11, and rejoiced. The Jewish leaders replied to Jesus, you're not 50 years old yet, and Herod Hunter says 33, but they're rounding it off. And you, you've seen Abraham? He did, I didn't say I saw him. I said, he saw me in the eyes of faith, although I am omniscient, so of course I saw him. Jesus said, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. We will glorify the Prince of Peace, we will glorify the Lamb, who is the great. That's the title Yahweh in the Old Testament, and he's claiming to be Yahweh there. 
and they picked up stones to stone him because he's claiming to be Yahweh. But he's claiming that Abraham saw his day. When we say that Old Testament folks were saved by faith in the promised Messiah, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, Abraham believed in me, and you don't. And you're looking at me. He never saw me, but he believed in me. He saw me with the eyes of faith. Romans 4, talking about Abraham and your salvation, and more importantly, mine. What can what then can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? Or what is his life and salvation proof? If Abraham was justified before God by works, by being a good person, he would have something to brag about. I'm justified because I'm better than other people. But he was not justified by works before God. Are you kidding? Nobody can do that. As Galatians says several times, if we could, if Angel, to me, it's hard to believe that Angel could ever do anything wrong. Number one, her name's Angel. Okay? About one third of them fell, Pastor Brad. Yeah, I heard about that. Uh, but Dustin assures me occasionally she doesn't, she's not less, she's less than perfect. Didn't you tell me that, right? You're in trouble now. Now he, he didn't tell me that. I was just using his example because they sit on the front row, so even though he's a lot bigger than I am, I still pick on him a little bit. It just makes an old man feel good. But, uh, yeah, it's hard for me to believe Angel could do anything wrong, but all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we're also told that if righteousness comes through works, righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's the, one of the worst things you can claim. Thanks a lot, Jesus, but I don't need your help. And that's what salvation by work systems are essentially saying. He's just a good example, a virtuous martyr. But he was not justified by works before God. For what does the scripture say? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God's promises about the land, seed, and the blessing, the Messiah, and it was reckoned him as righteousness. Abraham believed God was credited him for righteousness, justification by faith. Now, to the one who works, the guy who goes to Halliburton or goes to Cameron University or goes to the city of Duncan and works, David Yeager's paycheck is not a favor. It's not a gift. They, they owe David uh, Demerson's, Halliburton owes him a check every couple of weeks probably. You get it, right? And it's it, and you appreciate it, but you earned it. You, you've agreed to work for them, and you did great work for them, and they, they owe that to you. Does God owe me salvation? God doesn't owe me anything, but he gives it as a gift. It's not something we pay for. It's not something we earn. But our paychecks are something that our employers owe us, but to the one who does not work. Salvation doesn't work that way. But the person who believes on him who declares the ungodly be righteous, that is Jesus who died for us and rose again, that person's faith is credited for or as righteousness legally in God's sight. You know, babies have to stand before they can walk. Watching, I tell you what, watching Wrigley walk is such a joy because, you know what, I get to watch him walk just a little bit on Sundays and then he goes home and the parents have to take care of him. But when I have all seven of my grandkids, you know, last summer we were traumatized. We had three adults and seven kids. We had to play a really wide zone defense for five days, and it was not pretty. It looked like a bomb went off in our house when they left. And that was like the first 30 minutes. It took us like two months to get over it. But it's not easy. But it's a joy to watch uh, Wrigley walk. But he had to learn how to stand before he can walk. You know, we're given a standing in Christ, the moment of salvation and then we're called to walk worthy consistently. We're seeing that in Colossians, but those are not the same thing. They're, they're, they're related, but they're different things, right? So, yeah, the gospel is all about the good news that salvation is not something we do for God. It's something that God has done and does in us and for us through the, the work of Christ because Christ died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. So take this to heart. Uh, it's our turn. 
You know, the overall message, I think, one of the most important lessons of the, the Joseph story is it's illustrating the redeeming power of perseverance. Hupomene, that should be your favorite Greek word. It means a holy hanging in there. When you feel like you're at the end of the rope, you tie a knot and you hold on, right? And you keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, right? So we see that in Joseph and really in Jacob too, really. And all the guys at one level. The redeeming power of perseverance and forgiveness. If there's no forgiveness here, this wouldn't have happened. Um, in believers who actively rest in the sovereign providence of God, it's our turn to do that. This is our generation. Some of us are on the tail end of that generation. Zach, you're at the, the front end of this. But it's your job. You're going to have to stand for the faith, man. You're going to have to trust God even when it's hard and bad things are happening to you and your family. And uh, you need to actually rest that God works all things together for good. And he's smarter than we are. And so I would leave you with this. Let us consider anticipating this incredible reunion and being with the Lord Jesus Christ if we've trusted him alone for salvation. Let us consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Put your name in the blank. Julie Demerson, just remember at your worst moments, at your worst circumstances, the sufferings of this present time are real. They're painful. Don't let anybody talk you out of being human. I don't care how spiritual you are. When you get cut, you're going to bleed. When you suffer a loss, you're going to grieve. That happens to everybody. But these things, put them in perspective. They're not worthy to be compared with what we got to look forward to. We need to be actively looking forward to this reunion and our union with Christ in the future. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we praise you that you are able to do above what we can ask or think. And I pray you would, just in a little little bit, uh, make us homesick for heaven. Make, make us uh, aware that our citizenship is in heaven and the power that you use to resurrect Jesus Christ, you're going to employ to take our spirit into your very blessed presence, not because of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, you have saved us. And I pray that that would be a stabilizing and a motivating factor for us to live a strong, righteous, consistent, persevering Christian lives. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.